This is an ABC podcast. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. Okay, so our colleague Ari is saying that he's ready, so we're going to start now. I don't have any scripts or anything. I'm just the interviewee, right? Yeah, I'm... We're just going to have a chat about Kava and your experience. <laughs> okay. Okay. So thank you, Tomas Rutha, for filling in for me while I was away. And you've been doing a fabulous job filling in. Thank you very much. It was an honor. And it's great to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. Sisters, let's talk about Kava today and how much the culture around Kava has changed in the last few decades. Now, Rutha, when you were growing up in the Pacific in the 80s and 90s, did you see a lot of adults drinking Kava? Not really. Growing up, it was never a thing where you'd hear someone say, or a lady, a female say, I want to go out and drink Kava or, oh, we've been out drinking Kava. Mm. Did your mum drink it or even your dad? No, mum never drank kava. Um, dad never drank kava. I think the only one in my family uh, growing up was grandpa. Now, I'm learning a lot also myself because I thought kava was just for Fijians. But it's really interesting to know that your country has this as a kind of a traditional drink as well. Tell me about the first time you drank kava. The first time I had kava was in Fiji. I was a tennis player, so we went out to do the Pacific Ocean Engineer Championships, and I was in a house full of girls, and there was probably around 12 of us from different Pacific islands, all in one apartment. And then one night, um, we were not having any games the next day, so the auntie, there were two aunties and two of the uncles, and they just came up and said, hey, girls, who wants to have some grog? I, I think that's what they call it. And... Um, <laughs> And then I was like, oh, my God, is that kava? They're like, yeah, maybe in Vanuatu you call it kava. So I was like, I'm in. I want to have some kava. So it was beautiful because the setting was there was a bowl of kava right in front of us. And then there was the one of the uncles playing a ukulele and all the girls were sitting around. And the girls would, it was very funny because the girls would just go and just smell the bowl, which is something you don't do. When you drink kava, you don't go smelling it before you drink it. You just drink it. (laughs) (laughs) So they go in and they smell or they just poke their tongue in and they're like, oh, this is terrible. My tongue is numb and everything. So I knew that that was not right. You couldn't say anything like that from where I came from. You You can't do that. So I decided to be a good girl and just sit down, fold my legs and have the uncles playing ukulele and... Oh, and you know, I ended up having it probably around 11 shells that night. More grog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't even feel a thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was I was actually 15 years old. My mother was not proud of me when I gave her a call to tell her. So I decided to ask my dad where he was. And they're like, oh, yeah, your dad's here. So I was like, hey, dad, guess what? I had carver. And he's like, oh, how was it? And I was like, yay, yay, this is much better. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's a that's an impressive first start for you at 15 years old. <laughs> but I didn't continue from there. I just stopped right there and then at 15. It was just an experience, yeah. I think it was more about the respect you wanted to show to your host in, in Fiji. That's what we do. 
Yeah, I sat with them from the beginning of this conversation until the end of it. <laughs> Good on you. And what about now? How, how often do you drink it? We always try to say, oh, we just drink kava on the weekends, Fridays, especially Fridays. Fridays <laughs> is the day for drinking kava. But probably um, during the week, I think on Wednesdays for me is a good time to drink kava, but not past, I think I can drink kava every day. I can allow myself to do that, but only if I wrap it off early. So say by seven o'clock, eight o'clock, I should be done with my kava business and that start. Yeah, yeah, I, I got to start having something to eat and then have a good night's rest because I have to wake up four o'clock in the morning for my morning shift. So I can only afford to drink kava on Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's interesting. You know, we have the betel nut, the PNG betel nut. <laughs> I've tried eating that once and I didn't have my mouth red and I was very disappointed. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to have red mouth <laughs> indicating that I had betel nut. <laughs> yeah, I can have the betel nut every day, but not kava. Let's hear a bit more about what kava culture looks like in Port Vila today. Elsie Malau hosts the Roundtable podcast and she's the communication and advocacy coordinator at Sister in Vanuatu. She's speaking here to Alice Matthews. I am a town girl. I grew up in Port Vila. Growing up, kava was obviously very much an adult thing. My parents, you know, say after they finished work, if they were going to be hanging out with friends, they would be going to a kava bar. Just it was a way of them to like socialize, orient, and just kind of catch up with how um, everything was going in their lives. I think today it's quite different. Growing up, uh, I did witness a family friend who had too much kava and came to the point where he was physically shaking. So in Bishlama, we would refer to hemisiksek lokava. And uh, yeah, that that moment for me was terrifying because I had no idea. At the time I was witnessing it, I thought he was having some kind of fit. And it was only later that my parents explained to me that, oh, it was because he had too much kava. And that's what kava can do. And that was both of your parents, so your mom and your dad? Yeah, my mom and my dad would have kava. My dad would have kava more than my mom. My mom would, you know, if she was having kava, it was maybe once or twice a week. She was probably out maybe 30 minutes, max an hour, and then she would be back because, you know, she had to make dinner, make sure everything in the house was in order, all of that. Whereas my dad, he he would have kava quite more often than my mom. And if he was out having kava, you know, we always knew that he would probably be back home after nine o'clock. So as I grew up, you know, coming into my teens, if she knew she was having kava, she would ask me to, you know, help make dinner. Whereas my dad, it wasn't the same. If he was having kava, he was having kava. He didn't need to tell anybody. And we all kind of automatically knew, like, as soon as maybe it hit happy, 
If he still wasn't at home, we knew that he was at Kava. And there was that kind of role of when he came home from Kava, my mom had to dish him out dinner. The dinner had to be ready, that kind of situation. So would you say that Kava does have an impact on, on women and those gender roles? Yes. I would say it's not the only factor, but it is one of the factors that contribute to the, that power dynamic in the homes and having the women do, you know, the cooking, making sure that everything's ready for the men when they come back or for their husband when they come back from Kava. But I, I feel like it's a custom, you know, even on the islands or in the villages, if the men are having Kava, then the women will need to make sure that they have the dinner ready, not only for them when they come back from Kava, but for, you know, the children and everyone else that's with them at home. You mentioned at the start that the culture is different to how it used to be. How would you describe the Kava culture today? There are so many Kava bars now. When I was growing up, you know, there were only maybe like a couple of well-known Kava bars or like Macamals that people would go to for Kava. But now there's like Literally, you could walk down one street and there are three to four kava bars on the street. So the whole culture of kava is becoming not more well-known, but people are buying into it more. People are using it more as a way to kind of wind down from the day because kava is a relaxant. And so they're trying to, you know, use the kava to just chill out at the end of the day. Whereas before it was, you know, it was more of a social thing. I, today, obviously, people still use it as a social thing. You'll see groups of friends together at the cover bar having kava, chit-chatting, all of that. But yeah, I feel like there are some people today that will use it to the extreme and, you know, use it to the extent of where I had mentioned earlier that I witnessed someone just having too much kava and, you know, physically shaking. You know, some people will have kava to feel that and to go through that. Do you think that that availability is problematic That and that culture? I think so. I definitely think so because, you know, people have more access to it and because there are so many and if there's one right near their house, like on the street, then it's available to them whenever they want. And so it's taking you them away from their homes, their family. It can impact the women financially as well, especially if they are put in the situation as, you know, they could be the either they're the breadwinner of the family or both wife and husband are working, but the husband will still ask for money from the from their wives. For what? For Kaaba. Mm, that's really interesting. I know it's a bit different when it comes to you and your boyfriend. Um, you <laughs> told me in, when we chatted before, but what what happens when you and your boyfriend drink kava together? We'll have like a few shells of kava just to kind of relax, chill out, catch up with what each other did on like during the day. But if we know that we're having kava, you know, the first thing that we both kind of sit down and discuss, not really discuss, but I would just look at each other and be like, okay, so who's cooking? Can you cook? And then I can clean up. And so we agree 
who's going to do that because everyone's different when they have kava. But for me, if I know I'm having kava, I want to make sure that the dinner is ready and all of that is ready. And I don't need to cook or clean up straight after adding a couple of shells of uh, kava. So it was like the other night we were having kava with a few friends and I said, okay, so can you cook then? Because I'm really tired and I don't feel like cooking. And he was like, oh yeah, for sure. So he, he cooked his dinner and then we, we both cleaned up afterwards. So we, there's that sense of, you know, responsibility, I guess. He understands that uh, everything, uh, like the household duties are just mine. They're both of ours. How much do you know or did you know growing up about the history of kava and the cultural significance of it? Growing up, I didn't really, even today, like I don't quite understand the importance of kava, especially, you know, I know that having kava at the end of a custom ceremony is something that we do. Why? I know that I need to research and find on my own because I know the information is there. I know the older generation, they probably will, you know, understand the significance of kava. But for my generation, and I feel the generation coming before me, we should be on that same wavelength, you know, understand why it's important, why it's part of our custom and cultural ceremonies, and not take it as, oh, this is something that we can just do to, you know, hang out, chill out. I mean, yes, it is something that we currently do, and there's nothing wrong with it. But I just feel like that's something that needs to be brought up more. That's Elsie Malau with Alice Matthews. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. Elsie would like to learn more about the history and ceremonial use of kava in her culture. Alice Matthews has spoken to someone who does know more about traditional cover use, at least in her own experience, which is in Pentecost. Dr. Mere Tari Sovic is the executive director of Melanesian Women Today, and she's actually never tried cover because in her village, it's a taboo for women to drink it. My traditional beliefs and conviction, it always comes right out. Like that to me holds more credibility rather than just saying for the fun of it you know and Mm. I think it's like a spiritual experience and someone had said to me one time this cover that in in my culture and of uh, Pentecost in a way it is like having holy communion going to church It, it it is kind of in that sense where you you hold that so deeply that the conviction of the tradition of holding the tradition of not drinking outweighs the actual drinking of kava just because I might want to drink or because friends have asked me, I simply can't do it. And I respectfully say no. And I respectfully say that I respect the practices of my ancestors and, and what I've been told. And so I would politely say no. Rutha, you do drink kava now, but how does the taboo influence who you drink it with? This is speaking for me personally. I've never had the confidence to stand in front of anyone 
and drink kava because I know that this is not something that was allowed back then. So why should it be easy for me to do it now in front of my elders? I could go to a Nakamal, I could grab my shell, but I'll never stand where everybody else is. I'll take my shell and I go right at the back or go somewhere where I'm not facing the elders or kids um, or anybody in general. I, I don't really like for them to see that, oh, she's drinking kava freely like she's supposed to. <laughs> Good on you. What's a Nakamal? Oh, a Nakamal. Well, Anakamal in villages is a place where, say, for example, there was a fight in the community. So the chiefs would call in and say, okay, everyone, we got to meet up and we're going to have a meeting. So when we go, come and meet up, we go into the Nakamal, we sit down and then we discuss. But there's also another Nakamal where we sell kava. Now, this one here, every afternoon, you can see if you walk past, you walk on the streets and you see a light hanging, you know, that's indicating there's a Nakamal bar there. So you just go straight up and then you can hear different types of sound. I won't do it now because it's a little bit, um, yeah, so it's just kind of like betel nut where people spit and everything. It's also the same with kava, so... As soon as you look in, you hear the spitting and then, yeah, the wrenching of the mouth. And that's a Nakamal. <laughs> Dr. Sovik has told Alice more about how cover use has evolved in Vanuatu. I am from the northern uh, part of Vanuatu, from the island of Pentecost, traditionally referred to as Raga, R-A-G-A. So I can only speak from my experience and my context and how I view cover. It was part of my life, something that I'm used to, something that I know is part of, whether it's a celebration, whether it's a feast in terms of uh, celebrating somebody's birthday, somebody's uh, arrival, whether it's a visitor, whether it's a event of a wedding or a sorry ceremony or just a casual every other weekend for families to get together. It was pretty much part of my life growing up. My father had a cover bar, so I would have to say that cover, it is a part of me, whether I like it or not. It is still part of me until I die. Mm. And could women drink it back then when you were growing up? No. When I was growing up, I don't mean to sound very old, which I'm not that old. Cover has always been something that is taboo and it's also very taboo today. It's a it's a sacred plant. It's a sacred drink. It has a lot of traditional beliefs. Uh, it's not just something today that we use for commercial purposes that especially in town, people can drink it, women can drink it. That's fine. But in most islands, particularly where I come from, it's still very taboo. Uh, women cannot drink. So I can only speak from that coming from where I'm from. And other places they might do, but it has always been considered taboo. So I, today women are obviously with the changes of time, the modernity of time in town, in both Santo and Villa, you find a, a lot of the happenings or what's happening in the evening or afternoons that women are allowed to drink. And so mm. cultures change. How much was kava kind of revered and and respected in your upbringing? Very deep. 
especially from where I come from, the northern part of Pentecost Orara, but generally the entire, you know, the whole Pentecost Island, it is very sacred, very respected, highly respected, because we, you can rely on kava to bring peace. By that, I mean a token of peace, to make peace with your enemy, to make peace with the, you know, going back to the times where they would have quarrels between communities. So whoever there is uh, uh, something that was going on that needed uh, the community to come together to have a discussion about an issue, it always ends with cover or it starts with cover. So it is a very deep, sacred, and has a very deep spiritual sense to it as well. And some of the things that it depends on who you are, whether it's been told to you, whether you uh, learned how to reference the, the plant. So in all aspect of cover, where I come from, it is very revered. It's something that it's not taken lightly. It's something that as a child, it's particularly for men, right from the get-go, you're born, learning how to prepare it, how to plant it, how to cultivate it. So in, for the custom side of it, it is a very sacred, not just drink, but plant. Uh, we believe that it is a connection to each one of us, and it's a connection to who we are, from where you're from, and how we live out our life, and how we are, uh, connect with each other. Mm. How has that kava culture changed today, in your opinion, particularly in the cities? Yes, it has. For me, I would say it has changed over time, perhaps in ways that the role that it's played out in people's life, especially in cities, once you move into the city, there's different contexts in how you have to live. You know, money determines everything. Therefore, most families, particularly in a nuclear family, or maybe in a community have a hard time to, when you have a hard time to adjust to the prices of goods go up, the living standard gets harder. When there is stress, one turns to cover to find calmness, to find that peace. Cover has a very smoothing effect to it. It has a calming effect to it, which is part of the traditions because it's supposed to be revered to in that sense. When you drink cover, particularly in Vanuatu, there is a quietness to it. And that is the fact that you are respecting of the ancestors, right? It's an ancestor's drink. So paying respect to the ancestors, paying the respect to the gods. I guess you would think about it from every little bit of nuances of it, right? The practices, the setting of it, especially when you're moving it from a nakama to now a bar. So that takes away that cultural sense of what that looks like if you were to in the real traditional setting, right? So now you're putting it in the context of mixing the modern and tradition at the same time as 
history shows things change, culture change, everything change. And so you watch the evolution of Kava starting to uh, emerge into that direction and coming and living in the United States now that Kava is becoming more popular in the United States, particularly in places like New York where they have bars. I mean, turning it into tea, turning into, I mean, they're trying all kinds of different things, putting it in food. So that's another level, right? Mm, how do you feel about that commercialization of kava in places and cities mm-hmm. like New York? You know, I think in, in a sense, when you take that out from the real setting of it, right? Because I'm here, even though I'm, I'm right now living in, in Vanuatu, even though I'm living in town, in the capital city, there is still a sense of the deep traditions, right? But once you remove that altogether, you remove kava altogether from the Pacific, the you know, Pacific meaning the three sub-regions and particularly where I'm from. And you remove that completely and you now drop it in the middle of Manhattan, for instance. It is now become a thing of its own. And I think when I I see that immediately I cringe because now I see I see a lot of money making you know it's becoming like a money making product it's becoming like a another one of those trend maybe perhaps you could say in in a sense uh, that respect and that highly valued quality of how you see cover in terms of how your relationship with cover from that aspect of outside, from the context of outside, altogether from the boundaries of where you come from, it no longer has a meaning to you. It's just a fad or something that people want to try or, you know, it's like exotics sort of kind of thing. But to me, once it gets there, I no longer have a sense of what if it's um, something that I truly respected, unless my husband and, and families or friends have it in the confines of a house, then it's a, a different thing because it's a cover has to have a relationship, right? It has to touch with people. It has to be attached to uh, how you handle it and how you produce it and how you serve it. And so when you don't have that relationship with that context, then it becomes something of a, a, a different thing. What message do you want to communicate to the next generation when it comes to kava? I understand that history often would repeat itself, but making sure that this is a very old practice tradition and, you know, this is wise people and scientists, our own Indigenous scientists, who are able to take a plant and not just one, but cultivate it so we have different varieties of it. So think about the knowledge that comes with that for thousands of years. And so this is something that has been given to us and we are to uphold it. Whether we are going to practice this in the modern setting, that's fine. But have the uh, time to take to learn more about it. Why is it that we have it? Why is it that it's important that it's part of our custom and, you know, and ask the question, why do we practice or why do we have Unity Day every every year in Vanuatu? That was given because we had a colonial setting before we got independence. And so there was a lot of tension. And so the father of independence, Father Walter, and some of the people got together and says, we need to do something about this tension and all this drinking that's going around. So they brought kava. That's how kava came to be used in the modern setting. So oh. everything has the history. So take the time 
ask your parents, go back to the village, ask them. I think when you understand the value of what's at your disposal, something that is originally from Vanuatu, then you will value it the way that you will value your parents or your grandparents other than abusing it. Don't abuse it because it's a gift to us. And now it's going to be the gift to the world. And so something that represents you as an Ivanuatu and, and teach your children about it. Send them to a cultural center to learn more about kava. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's about how we use it and how we understand it and what does it mean to you. But just know what that is to you and where you come from because it's a gift for all of us to share. That's Dr. Mere Tarisovic from Melanesian Women's Network. Rutha, thank you again so much for sharing your stories with us today. And thank you. Thank you, Tomas, for filling in for me while I was away. It's your show as well as mine and our Pacific Sisters. So I'm glad you got to do this with the great team we have here at Sisters. Let's talk. Thank you very much for having me. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production presented by me, Hilda Wayne. Our producer is Alice Matthews, supervising producer is Kim Lester, and Falianga Fulu, Inga Stunsna, is our executive producer. Sisters Let's Talk is created on Wiradjuri, Nanawal, Nambri, Yagara, Turrbal, and Darrenbal country. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. Emtasona bungim you next time. Thank you.